Well, as we come this morning to God's Word, it's a little bit different than we normally address, the kinds of things that I normally address. So I don't have a text to read, per se, to begin our time together, but just to ask that you would join me as we pray, as we come to His Word. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for that hope that we have in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you are the same God who, to whom David could pray, on whom David could trust in the midst of his very difficult circumstances. And we come to you pleading with you that you would hear our cries for your Spirit's help this morning, that you would guide and direct in all that is said for the good of all of our souls, for the glory of King Jesus. Please, help me, help each of your people. We would know you ministering to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you'd basically have to be living in a cave or uh, having your ears plugged uh, totally unconnected with the world around us, not to know that we live in a time that is marked by a great deal of turmoil, a great deal of difficulty. And at the heart of that particular uh, difficulties, the particular problems in in America today is the matter of racism. A while back, I had a couple of messages to lay some groundwork for something of a discussion of this particular issue entitled Racism. My sermon this morning is a series, uh, beginning of a series, I believe, to address this issue from God's Word. And so here's the title, A Christian Understanding of and Pastoral Response to Racism. A Christian Understanding of and a pastoral response to racism. The very simple points. uh, The first is introduction. The second is definition. And then we'll address uh, some texts, some important texts. So first of all, just by way of introduction, I want to set forth my goal. I want to set forth the focus of this by way of uh, explaining the title. That is, a Christian understanding and a pastoral response. First of all, what do I mean by Christian understanding? By Christian understanding, what I'm I'm meaning is that I'm I'm not going to be looking at a lot of sociological studies. I'm not going to be quoting a lot of statistics. I'm not going to give you a lot of news sound bites or words from political pundits, though I will be quoting fairly heavily this morning from a couple of secular sources in order to give definition I'm really not interested so much in all the news and all the voices that you can pick up uh, on your phone and on your computer, uh, and if you still have one, on your television. Uh, What I I want to focus on is what do the scriptures have to say about this matter called racism. I want us all to come to an understanding of what God has said about racism in the Bible. Now, as I said some time ago, I say again this morning, uh, we will never come to a Christian understanding of racism if we do not believe that God has given us an infallible and sufficient word. 
We will not come to a biblical understanding and a Christian understanding of this matter of racism if we are not convinced that our omniscient God, when by His Spirit He moved holy men to pen the Scriptures, He had us in mind. He had our 21st century American situation in mind when he gave us this book. If we don't believe that, if we're not convinced of that thoroughly and fully, we can't come to a real Christian understanding. Now, that's not to say that the only book we should ever read is this book and that it's got uh, all of the information that we need about everything in life. But if we're going to come to a Christian understanding, we've got to have that kind of conviction regarding this book. And if it's going to be a Christian understanding, we must also be convinced that Christ must have a central place in our view of these things. But then I said it's a pastoral response. Not only a Christian understanding of, but also a pastoral response to. This message and what subsequent messages come um, are not meant to answer all of the questions regarding the events in our country's history. It's not meant to address all of the problems of slavery, of the civil rights movement. I'm not going to answer every question regarding every current event, police shootings, protests, riots, governmental response. I'm not here to address our nation. I'm not here to address the evangelical church in America. I'm here as a pastor on behalf of my fellow pastors, to address you, the people of God, here at Trinity, those who are attending, sitting in the multi-purpose room or the fellowship hall, sitting in the gymnasium, or here, or watching online, my primary focus is to address the people of God for whom we're going to give account. I'm hopeful that I will, with God's blessing, be able to help all of us to think biblically about the matters of racism. I want to give you fuel, I want, or I want to reinforce your understanding of these matters from the Scriptures so that you can engage in the cultural conversation that is going on with biblical, from a biblical standpoint. And I trust that under God, the, these messages will be used to help to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do not, we must not be deceived to think that Satan is not going to use this to try to divide us and disrupt us and to hinder the work of God from this place. So by way of introduction, that's my goal. It's a Christian understanding from the Scriptures, Christ being central, pastoral response, as we as pastors seek to give direction and help to you, the people of God, gathered here in Montville, New Jersey, and watching online. But also then, let me just give, by way of introduction, some exhortations. If you have any questions, if you believe something has been overlooked, 
If you are hurt, offended, or deeply convicted by anything that is said, please, come talk to us. Help us understand where you're coming from. Help us and allow us to help you work through those, those questions that hurt, that offense, or that conviction. I hope that the conditions in New Jersey will change sooner rather than later so that we can have a forum like our adult Sunday school class to be able to have more question and answer discussions related to this particular topic. But in the meantime, please feel free to send me any of your questions or to call me with those questions or to meet me at the door with those questions because we want to help you. We want to pastor you, the people of God. This, do I need to say it, is an emotionally charged issue. And so we need to remember Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 13, and Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Let love be without hypocrisy, Romans 12, 9 and 10. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. In 1 Corinthians 13, especially verses 4 through 8, love is patient, is kind, Love is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. We're going to need this for one another if we're going to continue to know the unity of the Spirit and maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so we are going to need the Spirit to be at work in us, producing that fruit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those are my introductory comments, the goal, the focus, and a few opening exhortations. Now let's come to the matter of definitions. Definitions. And if we're going to talk about this particular topic, as with most topics, but we, we need to have clear definitions. We need to understand, you need to understand what definitions I'm using for particular words so that when I use a word in uh, the message today or in subsequent messages, if there are any, uh, my elders may decide this is the last time I get to speak on this, but the fact of the matter is that uh, you need to understand where I'm coming from and how I'm using those terms. So let's begin with the definition of the word race. What is race? The PCA, in a paper that was given as they were wrestling with the issues of race, I think it was back in 2016, came up with this definition. The word race is not a scientific classification. Rather, the term race is used to denote 
a social phenomenon that is something that happens among, God, among people with a biological component. That's, that's quoting from Thomas Sowell, Race and Culture. That is, the term race not only pertains to the color of skin and other biological factors, but also may include the cultural factors, associations, and assumptions that we attach to certain races as well. So it's got a biological component, it's a sociological component, there are cultural factors, all in this word call, that we're t- I'm calling race. Right? That's the way the PCA defined it. The Encyclopedia Britannica, on its article on race, says this, and please bear with me because I want you to understand where I'm coming from. I don't like to quote encyclopedias for, but, but I, I, I've got to give you a definition of, of this term that's a societal term if we're going to rightly understand this. Race is the idea that the human species is divided into distinct groups on the basis of inherited physical and behavioral differences. So the human species divided into different distinct Groups. What most definitions have in common is an attempt to get, categorize people primarily by their physical differences. And so in the U.S., this term has come to, to address matters of, like skin color and hair texture and facial features and eye formation. Such distinctive features are associated, again, in America, this is the Encyclopedia Britannica, with large geographical separated populations. So they're set apart by big geography, they have specific characteristics, and it's so said that person is from that race and that person is from that race. And, and they can also be used to describe linguistic groups, such as the Arab race or the Latin race, or religious groups, such as the Jewish race, or political, national, and ethnic groups, such as the Irish race, the French race, the Spanish race. You understand what the encyclopedia said. This is what it defines as race. This is how it's, this woman who wrote this is describing her studies on what the word means in our culture. Now listen carefully to what she goes on to write after her studies. At no point from the first rudimentary attempts at classifying human populations in the 17th and 18th century. At no point since these things were first brought up in the 17th and 18th centuries to the present day have scientists agreed on the number of races of mankind. The features to be used in the identification of races or the meaning of race itself. Anywhere from 30 to 60 groups of different races. And then she wrote this, contemporary scientists, or the editor, I'm using her, but the editor has this, contemporary scientists are no closer to agreement than their forebearers. Thus, race has never in the history of its use had a precise meaning. 
Although most people continue to think of races as physically distinct populations, scientific advances, and here they're referring to genetic studies, going through the genome, advanced scientific studies in the 20th century demonstrated that human physical variations do not fit a racial model. I won't give you all the statistics that went on after that. Do you see a problem here? Because we're going to talk about racism, which is rooted in this thing called race. And the scientists and many of the sociologists and the anthropologists and the writers of encyclopedias, and I looked at many other definitions, humanist societies and Christian societies, and they all come back to the same thing, that it's difficult, if not impossible, to actually come to a definition of what race means. Now, if we can't agree on what a race is, it's going to be awfully difficult to figure out what racism is. So here's part of the problem, and you'll know why I've spent no little time wrestling with this, trying to get up, figure out how I can present it to you. That's why I'm taking time to read encyclopedias to you. Here's another term which is important, uh, not directly, but again, well, it is directly, but another related term, and that's ethnicity. And some make a big distinction between race and ethnicity. Ethnicity being that which is identified as cultural uh, traits, language, beliefs, religions, food habits, versus race, which is looked at and described as a, a an innate uh, characteristic. Again, let me just read the, the encyclopedia. Ethnic identity is acquired, and ethnic features are learned forms of behavior. Race, on the other hand, is a form of identity that is perceived as innate and unalterable. Race is thought to be profound and grounded in biological realities. That's how it's perceived. It is perceived as being rooted in biological realities. That's what the scientists have had difficulty wrestling with. And that's what we end up wrestling with when we try to deal with the sin that's rooted or around this issue called race. Ethnicity has to do with beliefs, attitudes, behaviors. John Piper writes, ethnicity includes beliefs and attitudes and behaviors. We are biblically and morally bound to value some aspects of some ethnicities over others. Or as another man put it, some cultures are better than others at certain points. And all you need is one text from the scriptures to show that that's the case. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 12... Not too long ago, we heard this applied and and opened up for us. Paul, writing to Titus, says, And one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Certain cultures have certain cultural sinful manifestations. For whatever reason. And therefore, at that point, that culture is not as good as another culture that doesn't have those sinful propensities. 
Otherwise, God could not have put that verse in our Bible. So, because of the difficulty in defining and distinguishing races and distinguishing race from ethnicity, I will seek to be clear, but I will not always maintain a clear distinction between race and ethnicity. Because they overlap so much. What is race? In the scripture, there's a word that's translated occasionally race, and it's a word which basically means, used to mean family groups or nations. But it's not a consistent term similar to what we have here or we're thinking of here. So then what is racism? Well, racism has basically two meanings, two possible meanings. The first is to believe that humans are divided into separate, exclusive, biological entities called races. That's racism, the belief in race. And that, joined to that, is a causal link between inherited physical traits and traits of personality, intellect, morality, and other cultural behavioral features. Again, quoting I don't remember if that's, uh, that's from the, uh, yeah, still from the encyclopedia. The second meaning for racism is what we think of when we think of racism. Racism is the belief that some races are innately, innately superior to others. To use the PCA definition, racism is an explicit or implicit, that is, obvious or not so obvious, seen or not directly seen. Racism is an explicit or implicit belief or practice that qualitatively distinguishes or values one race over other races. Racism is thinking one race is better than another. Categorically, qualitatively. To put it in my own words or to expand this a little bit, racism is a matter of the heart. It may be expressed. It may be unexpressed. It may be verbally or practically manifested. That is by the way I speak to somebody or about somebody or the way I act towards somebody. It may manifest itself in showing favor to someone just because of their race. Or it may manifest itself, and this is what we usually think, in showing its disfavor, disdain, distrust, or even hatred towards someone because of their race. Now take with your Bibles with me, if you would, here, and turn with me to Titus chapter 3. For here we have a description of the human condition that Paul was addressing and needed, he wanted Titus to address with those Cretans. And notice what he says about the human condition. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. 
He says to Titus, or writes to Titus, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Those are some some things they're supposed to be doing. For we once, notice he said we, Paul, Titus, Timothy, those working with him, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, and then notice, hateful, that is, you look at them and they're, they, they, all you want to do is, is despise them and hating one another. This is the human condition. This is the human heart. And with such a heart, are we surprised that there is things called racism? Because Jesus said, and it's recorded in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as all as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So whether we're talking about the actions of the man or the words of the man, for out of the abundance of the heart, so a man speaks. If we've got hate within our hearts, then we ought to not be surprised when hate comes out of people's mouths and when hate is manifested in people's actions. And when that is associated with Race or done because of a person's race or perceived race. That's racism. Now, I do want you to know that there's a couple of other terms which are important for us. They don't play a whole lot of role in this morning, but I want you to know that I'm, I'm looking at them and they will become a part and more and more a part of, of the things that I have to say, and that is having looked at what racism is, secondly, what is meant by structural racism, systemic racism, and institutional racism. And I'm just going to give you some very brief comments here because it's not the focus of my sermon this morning to address systemic, structural, and institutional racism. Systemic and structural racism are often used interchangeably and Microsoft put together a statement to help people understand our present culture and it it jived with several other uh, statements and the humanistic, uh, uh, another uh, organization I looked at, the Aspen Institute, and they said, a system in which public policies, institutional practices, cultural representations, and other norms work in various, often reinforcing ways to perpetuate racial group inequity. So when you have these policies that are, in, that are ensconced in a system, they are found in institutions, practices, and in their representation, that's systemic or structural racism. Institutional racism, very similar, but racism refers to the policies and practices within and across institutions. That is, intentionally or not, that, that intentionally or not produce outcomes that chronically favor or put a racial group at a disadvantage. Institutions such as schools and legal systems, law enforcement, and health, health care. 
Those are, those are the things we're wrestling with. Those are the things in the, in the conversation. Now, that, that section there is going to have to wait for another time. That becomes much more diverse. I just want this morning to understand what it is we're seeking to address, what it is I'm seeking to address in this. Racism. Now, there is something called individual racism, which is, I think, more what each of us face on a regular basis, and that is individual racism can include face-to-face or covert, that is, behind-the-scenes actions or words toward a person that intentionally expressed prejudice, hate, or bias based on race. Now, I keep coming back to this matter of saying based on race because, you know, all these sins can exist without any racial component. I can kill somebody for no reason other than I just hate them. It doesn't have to be because I hate their race. I can lie to somebody and I can belittle somebody for, some, for many other reasons than just because of their race. When we talk about racism, we're talking about these kinds of sins manifesting themselves because I see in that person and acknowledge in that person something of a characteristic that I say is associated with their race that I don't like. Now, there are examples of racism throughout history, both structural, institutional, and individual, right? You can't talk about Nazi Germany and Hitler without saying there was an institutional, structural, systemic effort to kill the Jews because they were Jews. The treatments of, and again, I wrestle with the terms to use. I don't want to offend anybody. I'm going to use the word black. Blacks. In America, the treatment of blacks in America, slavery and segregation were wicked and sinful. They were structural. They were institutional. They were clearly individual as well. Haman, in the book of Esther, manifests this kind of hatred because of one Jew, and he he attributes it to all Jews, and he wants to do away with all Jews. The Jews toward the Gentiles and the Samaritans in the Bible had in their structure, in their prayers, in their words, things which became practice among them, as well as individuals toward Samaritans and Gentiles. So the focus of the definitions of racism that I'm aiming at have to do with the heart. They have to do with the behavior of the racist. The heart, the person who believes that one race is less valuable than another. Now, brethren, before I I leave this point of racism, we do need to make a distinction between racism and diversity. Now, diversity is just a word to describe the fact that there are many different backgrounds many different colors, hair textures, languages. There are those differences that exist around us. Diversity is not the same as racism. And acknowledging diversity is not the same as racism. Acknowledging that somebody's different than me and sitting to get to know them because they're different than me, and something about those differences is not necessarily racist. 
It could be the most loving thing that you could ever experience is somebody really wanting to get to know you and know everything about you. Diversity exists in our nation. Diversity exists in our state. It exists in our communities. It exists in our congregation. Diversity exists in America. That's an undeniable reality. That is what the American experiment is kind of all about, is the fact that it's a melting pot of ethnicities. It's a melting pot of nationalities. It's a melting pot, if you will, in that, in that sense, of races. Check out all the different restaurants. Just hit restaurants near me and see all the different flavors that you can find. Just walk down the street or sit in a subway and listen to all the different languages. I've always wanted the gift of ears, not the gift of tongues. So that I could sit there and hear this one and that one and that one. Oh, what are they talking about? They seem to be so happy. They're all laughing over there, but it's a language I don't know. And all you have to do is look around this room. And you'll see it's, in some senses, not all that homogenous. There is quite a bit of diversity. So that's all my introduction and my definitions. If you want, I'll send you the definitions. I'll send you the links. Just let me know and you can see what I've been reading. But third, the biblical categories for the sin of racism. This is really where I wanted to get, but I didn't feel like I could get there without doing that. And and there's a sense of me I want to apologize, but I'm not going to apologize because I felt I had to do it. But here's where we are, the biblical categories. Where do I come up with a biblical category for this sin called racism? When I don't have that term in my Bible, where do I begin to look? Well, I look at what's described as racism, and I look at our culture, and I see what's happening out there, and I say, so where does my Bible describe these kinds of things happening? Well, here's the category that I believe racism fits in, if we're going to use a biblical category. And racism is an expression of prejudice. Racism is an expression of partiality. Let me just be plain. I believe racism, I don't don't believe, I know racism is sin. And the Bible calls that being partial towards somebody. Now, we can be partial, again, or prejudiced against people for all different reasons. Many different reasons. In Leviticus 19, verse 15, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. And as we look around at our culture, what do we see? We see people talking about injustices everywhere. Injustices are happening. People in high places and people with responsibility, authority, whether it's police officers or whether it's judges, they have this ability to make judgments and there's injustice in our land. And we say, that's wrong. And and Leviticus, in Leviticus, Jesus told the judges of his people in the Old Testament, this is how they were, what they were supposed to do. They were not to have injustice in judgment. They were not to be partial to the poor, that is, oh, because you're poor, I'm going to be favorable toward you, nor were they to be deferring or partial to the great. 
Say, well, you're great. I don't want to offend you. But you are to judge your neighbor in righteousness. According to what is right. What they deserve. If it's wicked, deal with wickedness. If it's righteous, if it's good, deal with it as goodness. Same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 17. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. There's one passage I want us to look at, and that's James chapter 2. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 2. We have this matter of partiality, of prejudice being addressed. In particular, it's addressed in verses 1 through 13. Because we don't have a lot of time, I'm just going to highlight a couple of things for you, and I'm going to give some explanation. You can further read in the passage. James chapter 2 and verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Then he goes on to describe how the rich come into a place and they're treated differently than the poor who come into the church. And so here he is saying to them, You're not to be, if you're a Christian and you have this testimony that you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should not look upon people with personal favoritism based on on the money that they have or the way they show the money that they have, right? By the way that they're dressed. But then notice down in verse 9. But if you show partiality, or let's go read, excuse me, read verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. If you show partiality, you are committing sin. It is clearly sin to treat people on the basis of superficial, external things and hate them or despise them or treat them less or more because they have more or less or because they have some characteristic. Now here, the primary focus is upon, in the first part of the chapter, is upon rich and poor. But notice the second part. He starts by quoting Leviticus 19.18. He goes back to the holiness code and he picks up that phrase from the holiness code. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's very interesting that James should pick up that phrase. Now he picks it up out of Leviticus in which in the book of Leviticus it's talking about not hating your fellow countryman in your heart. Leviticus 19.17. Don't hate them in your heart, but you shall reprove them You shall and not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Now, he may still be talking about money at this point. But the, the passage that he quotes actually talks about relationships. Somebody who's your brother. Now here's what really gets interesting, because Jesus quoted this same text. You all know where he quoted it, right? 
Luke chapter 10, the good Samaritan. And this is why it was so shocking to the people around him. They hear him quote this text, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the man to whom he's speaking, the lawyer to whom he's speaking says, oh, who is my neighbor? And his thought is, it's my countryman, Leviticus 19. And Jesus says this, this parable of the good Samaritan, and he says, who was his neighbor? It was the Samaritan who treated the man. The Samaritan proved to be the culturally unclean one, the racially despised one, is actually the one who manifests neighborly mercy. So James' words, taking James' words and applying them to a racially charged situation about partiality, I think is absolutely, I think it's an accurate way to handle the text. Because this is the the verse that he quotes. To treat people with partiality, to show favor to one group and not another based on merely external realities like economic status or race is sin. Notice how James says it. Look again at verses 9 and 10. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as, a trans, as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. You break the law at any point, you're a lawbreaker. And if that's a disposition of the heart to hate somebody who's different than you, that's sin. They're a lawbreaker. If that's a way of speaking that derides people because they're different than you, that's sin. You're a lawbreaker. The passage makes it very clear. Prejudice, partiality, racism is unloving. For we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in fact, may be exposing hatred. Oh, we just think it's just the way I was brought up. Just the way I was made to think. No, Leviticus 19 says the opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself, or the context in that is hating your fellow countrymen. It could very well be that that is exposing a real dark spot of hatred in your heart. Racism is an expression of prejudice. Partiality is an expression of sin. Paul in 1 Timothy 5 verses 21 goes on to use, these, use similar words about bias and partiality to describe how rulers, even religious rulers, should be, should be treated. 1 Timothy 5 21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the chosen angels to maintain these principles. That is, showing honor to those who are preaching the word, providing for them and their elders in, in their labors, protecting their reputation, and addressing them publicly when their sin needs to be addressed. And Paul says, don't let your loyalty to those leaders, don't let your 
their position of authority change what you do. If sin is seen in a leader, address it publicly. Don't be put off. Don't be biased. Don't be partial. We might not do it with the sin to deal with their sins properly out of a faulty expression of honor. We might do it out of loyalty and friendship to them. We might do it out of, we might not deal with their sin out of fear for their authority. But it is to be dealt with without bias. It's to be dealt with without partiality. So even those with religious authority are not to undermine or to be given a a pass. They're not to be treated with bias. Why do I raise that? Well, one, because it's where the words are used. Two, because it highlights somebody that if anybody we thought should get biased, it's, it's that person who has that place of authority and responsibility within the church. Certainly we ought to be biased toward them, but not even them. Very quickly and, and finally, let, we should be impartial because God is impartial. Our God is an impartial God. Over and over again, we find in the scriptures, Deuteronomy 10, 17, the awesome God who does not show partiality. Galatians 2 and verse 6, God shows no partiality. 1 Peter 1 and verse 7, Peter addresses the people. He says, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges. Our God is impartial. We recently heard from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 25 that, that the impartiality of God is to move slaves, move employees to, to act appropriately in their role and to serve their masters. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality from God. Our God is impartial. But in Ephesians, the parallel passage puts the emphasis on the masters, knowing that both your master and their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Our God is impartial. Peter had to learn this, didn't he? He had to learn that God was impartial because he was a Jew well-trained in Jewish history, well-trained in Jewish practice. And so he had to learn that God is not partial toward the Jews only, but he wants that the gospel is to go to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10 and verse 34. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not the one to show partiality. So, brethren, we should strive to be impartial in this this way, like our God is. He causes the sun to rise and rain to fall on the righteous and the evil. So should we. He causes the rain to fall on all of the continents, in every culture, in every place where it falls. It's a gift from his hand. And we should be just as impartial with regard to the view of race as our God is. We should be impartial because our God is impartial. We're acting like him. We're displaying his character. Then, brethren, by way of application, we should grieve over sins of racism in our culture. We should grieve over the reality that there is hatred and racism manifesting itself in our culture. We should grieve. We should shed streams of water because people do not keep God's law. We should be like Paul, who could talk about those 
whose God was their belly, who could talk about those who do not walk and, 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 and excuse me, who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says, I tell you this weeping. Do we weep when we see injustice and race, racism happening in our culture? Do we weep? Or do we just turn to our favorite pundit and find a way to get around that grief over the sin that's manifested itself in our culture? And brethren, let us pray. We must mortify the sin of of partiality in our own hearts. That was the first point as I was uh, kind of passed over that. But we we must mortify it in our own hearts. If we see it in our hearts toward any race or any person, we need to mortify that in our hearts. We need to grieve over it as we see it in our nation, and we need to pray for heavenly wisdom. Because this is not an easy discussion to have. But James 3 and verse 17 says that wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easily entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And I believe that's an accurate way to translate that verse. Without partiality. Without hypocrisy. That's the kind of people we need to be if we're going to have discussions about this, if we're going to help people in this situation, if we're going to face these things. And we need to pray that Christ Jesus would return. Because it's only when he returns that the wolf is going to lie down with the lamb. It's only when he returns that the lion is going to eat with the ox. It's only when he returns that there's going to be full peace and restoration and there will be no more hating and being hateful to one another. In the meantime, we need to pray for revival. For Christ Jesus is our peace. And we need to pray that the gospel of peace would be proclaimed. That the God of peace would come and reconcile sinners to himself. And if you sit here this morning, and I'm talking about racism, and you're going, oh, that's, that's fine, that's, that's great, go on with that. I, I can feel this way if I want, or I don't really care about that. You know, the fact of the matter is, you have a worse problem than being at enmity with the people around you. You, have, you are at enmity with God. You're at war with God, and God is at war with you. But he's the God of peace, and he reconciles sinners to himself by the Prince of Peace, as the gospel of peace is declared. Jesus is our our peace who has reconciled us to God. And I urge you to go to Jesus Christ. And my final application, brethren, thanks for hanging in there with me. My final application is this. Don't quibble over terms. This is too important to just sit and fight about words. A logomachy. An argument over words. Well, I think grace means this. Okay, fine. I think grace means this. Okay, that's fine. Know that you want another have different definitions of race, and when you talk to one another, make sure you're using that term as they would understand it. Or you'll not be able to have any kind of meaningful discussion with people if you don't define the terms and use the terms, and when they're terms as fuzzy and as difficult as race... Be aware of the fact that people may have a different view than you. You know, it is actually biblical to think of, as I said in those those sermons on what is man, it is actually biblical to think of only one race. Genesis 1 and 2 make it very clear that God made Adam and Eve, and from them came all the rest of the humans. And, or... Back to to Noah and all those humans that come, every human being has descended from Adam. They are all from one, out of one, Acts 17, 26. Every nation of mankind, every ethnos 
anthropon, every ethnic group, every nation out of men or of men come from one, either one man or one couple. Depending on how you want to think of it, theologically as the federal head, or you want to think of it practically as the human race. It is biblical to think that way. That's not a wingnut idea. It's also not a wingnut idea to use the term to say it speaks of many races. Because the fact of the matter is, the word is used for family groups and nations. This word genos, translated race at certain places. And it is in modern vernacular, in the use of language, to speak of races as groups of people in similar characteristics. That's common parlance. That's how the word is used, okay? So don't argue over the term. Just recognize that people differ on how to use the term. But do know that your term has roots. And those who actually speak of specific multiple races... They were atheists who first promoted that. They weren't Christians. But you look around into the human eye, there's all kinds of races in this room. There are all kinds of ethnicities and all kinds of of people. So let's not argue over terms. The most recent term, let's not argue over whether people are colorblind or not. A notable black preacher who said, I don't like this term because it's not accurate. You see color. I know I see color. And he made a good point. He says, you look out and of course you see color. Because everybody who tells me they're colorblind then goes on to tell me all their friends of color. So I guess you saw it. But then a notable Jewish lawyer on the other side, he comes out and says, you know what? I grew up hearing this term and you know what it meant? Don't be a racist. So if I'm colorblind, it means I'm looking at people without making that my determinant factor. So if you're going to argue over a term, what a waste of words. The issue is too important for us to spend time just arguing over terms. Let's come back to the scriptures and say, am I partial or impartial? Do I have this sin of looking upon people and thinking down on them because they're different than me? If there is that in my heart, then I am a sinner. And I need to repent of my sin and go to Jesus Christ and find forgiveness with him. Well, brethren, let's pray and ask for God's help in this matter. Father in heaven, be gracious to us to help us that we might more reflect your impartiality in our dealings with one another. I thank you for the people of God at this place. I thank you for their love for one another regardless of of the backgrounds and the differences that exist. I thank you for what you have done in our midst. But Lord, we plead with you that you would be merciful to us as a church and preserve us and make us an army to do good in our culture. We grieve over the wickedness that's taking place in our culture, people hating one another, murdering one another. Father, be gracious to us. Do come by your great power and your grace and transform lives. And Lord Jesus, do come quickly and restore everything, make everything new. Wrap it all up and bring in that new heaven, the new earth where only righteousness will dwell. And we ask that you do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.